0: This is episode 26 with veteran AFL coach, Cameron Schwab. G'day everyone and welcome to the broadcast. I'm your host, Brendan Hardman, at each week, we bring you an inspirational guest or message to help you blokes out there live a holistically healthy lifestyle. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world, and let's get stuck in. Leadership is a way of thinking, a way of acting, and most importantly, a way of communicating. Now that quote is by Simon Sinek. If you don't know who Simon Sinek is, then I think you should go to iTunes and I believe the clip is called Find Your Why. It is an unbelievable clip. He is an unbelievable motivational speaker and, uh, and leadership kind of expert. Today's episode, I'm so excited, so bloody excited to get stuck into this with you guys today. We have Cameron Schwab on the podcast this week. And if you don't know who Cameron Schwab is, he was an AFL CEO for over 25 years. He was the youngest ever AFL CEO in the modern game at at just the age of 24 where he took over Richmond over in uh, when it was still the VFL. I believe it was around about 1988, somewhere around there. Uh, And then he went on then to uh, become CEO of Melbourne. Then he became the CEO of the Fremantle Dockers over in West Australia, a team very close to my heart. And then he went back and became CEO after that again of Melbourne. So he's CEO of three different clubs across four different periods uh, within the AFL system. And he's just an incredible bloke. He's an incredible thinker and he has so much knowledge so much knowledge about leadership building teams communication how to actually handle mental health within the workplace it's just such a great interview and i to be honest we recorded nearly two hours nearly two hours of uh of content here and i did cut down a little bit of it but i couldn't cut down the majority so i've actually gone and split this split this episode into two so lucky you uh okay It's back this week. Um, And you know what? It's actually a um, it's actually a, a good topic here to be back with because the I guess we're, we're talking here about Legend of the Week and Legend of the Week is back and for anyone who is a new time listener or, or potentially listened to the last episode as their first time, as I know we had, thank you to Ted because we had a whole heap of influx of new listeners last week. Uh, so Legend of the Week is where I go and I pick someone who has left a review on iTunes or a review on Facebook for us and I'll read you out. And you get dubbed as Legend of the Week. What it is there to do is to promote people to jump on board and be involved with this podcast. If you want to be... You know, featured on the podcast, and all you need to do is just go and leave us a review. It can be any review as well. It doesn't have to be positive, it can be negative. If you don't like the podcast, you know, tell us, tell us why, because we're always looking to change things, always looking to make things better. Uh, But if you love the podcast, which I hope everyone does, give us a five star rating, which this legend has done. Uh, Luke, Luke from Central West New South Wales is actually his name, but we'll just go with Luke. So, Luke, tell Luke. Titles this, Glad You're Back, and he's given us a five-star review. And Luke says, G'day, mate. Glad you're back on air. I listen to a variety of podcasts each week as I go about my work. I always find your podcast interesting, and as someone who manages mental health issues, I think it's great we are normalizing these conversations. Regards, Luke. Luke, mate, you are an absolute bloody legend. I, I'm i not sure if iTunes is the same as... Yeah, it's the same as YouTube, where at the moment, if you swear within the first few minutes of the of the episode, then they actually uh, actually limit your people that listen to this. So I, I, I won't use the F word like I was going to. However, you are an absolute legend, mate. And thank you. Seriously, thank you from the bottom of my heart for, to everyone who's been out there. We've got, um, at the moment on iTunes, we've got about 60 ratings, about 30-odd uh, reviews on there, actually a little bit less, 26 reviews. Um, iTunes, I think there's five reviews over there, maybe. Uh, majority of all, four, five-star. Uh, a couple of uh, They've got one here that's a, f- a four-star, another one that's a one-star from someone who didn't like the fact that I swore, uh, but that's okay. That's their opinion. But if you want to be featured on Legend of the Week, jump over there onto itunes onto facebook it really does help us grow just leave us a rating leave us a review and it just helps us get our message out in front of more people and helps us get this podcast out and you know, I love doing this podcast. Um, we don't take any money from it. Uh, we just, all we do is we just try and put the content out there. And I say we, and it's literally just me. And all I do is I put the content out there for as, and try and get it as far and as wide as I can to as many people as I can. And we are international. We are all over the world. There's there's people listening to this in the US, in, uh, in the UK, in France, Italy. Uh, I had someone in Namibia <laughs> who tuned in for a couple of episodes. We've got people over in New Zealand you know, and, of course, all over Australia. So the more we can spend spread this word, the more we can actually get this podcast in front of people and start changing people's lives, male, female, doesn't matter who it is, we can change the lives of this podcast, I'm so confident in that message. Okay, so this episode... It's a long one, strap yourself in. Uh, it's actually split over two, so it's not too bad, actually. I think it's, it's about 50, uh, 45, 50 minutes uh, worth, uh, which is actually short for how we normally go. And I'll stop rambling here, and we'll get stuck in this episode. All right, sit back, relax, and let's get stuck in. Managed to put a round of applause in there as well. All right, legends. Welcome to episode 26 of the bloke cast. Uh This week, we have uh, one of the AFL titans. He, is, uh, he was a CEO of three different clubs across four different periods. So one club, he was CEO of twice. And i'm so grateful for him to be here so cameron thank you so much for being here and uh, and for giving up your time to come on the on the podcast we really appreciate it mate
1: i'm looking forward to it uh, I've, I've had a little bit of a listen to the work you've been doing and congratulations on that and hopefully we can get something interesting out of the radio, see if we can uh, take it into a place which is um good for you good for your listeners
0: yes yeah i'm i'm excited about it just I mean, because I'm a huge, I'm a huge Frio fan for a starter. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> saw that. I, I was listening to your, your conversation with Alpado Carlisle. Oh, yeah. Carlos. <laughs> Obviously, you got a bit of a soft spot for the, uh, for the Port Adelaide boys for, for personal reasons, but you're a Freo man. And, uh, it's even on, on, on my reflection, it was a, my, my time in Fremantle was, um, it was a very important time personally. And, yeah. But it was also a, uh, it's probably the, I'd say it was probably the best period of my, um, time in the game as well and, uh, and and it was unexpected as well i did yeah i never probably thought that i'd be you know when i started out there was no there was no free o, and then we're only vfl and excuse me and 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 then by the end you know i find myself as uh <coughs> excuse me they've only had uh, three ceos in the history and i'm one of their three so uh,
0: i was gonna yeah, ask exactly. do, you, do you think that's because it was a new club and it was a it was an opportunity to start something fresh rather than you know the the yeah, two other clubs being Richmond and Melbourne are two. you know, they have so yeah. much history. They're hundreds of years very of history traditional. There and and very yeah. traditional. A lot of um, a lot of uh, I guess uh, roots in the way they do things already. Whereas Frio, you go over there, it's uh, expansion club. Um, it's probably the redheaded yeah. stepchild over in WA. So it's you know you get to yeah. you get to really sink your teeth into something different. Yeah.
1: Yes and no. I think that um, and probably where I was fortunate. Excuse me, i play my tomorrow <laughs> oh, fortunate it is that i i grew up in uh, my, my time my probably my development time in the sport was as a recruiting person I, I was recruiting for melbourne football club when i was relatively young and but it was also at it was prior to the introduction of the west coast eagles and mm-hmm. and so i saw the end of the the you know the, the the waffle as it was um it probably it was a reduced version as compared with in its peak, but it certainly was still a very, very strong competition, and,
2: yeah.
1: and because of that, you know, you, I, I built up a, a very strong respect for, um, yeah, all, all of the West Australian clubs. And in fact, you know, when I first got involved in recruiting, because my father was uh, was he that was his background as well, yep. and I remember his advice to me was to go and meet with all of the. know the the general managers and secretaries, ceos whatever the title was at the time of all of the local clubs and and so therefore i I actually got to know that aspect of their football in wa and probably because i was always into the folklore of of the game um I, i knew a fair bit about you know jack sheedy or george doig or these sorts of you know iconic west australian figures before actually landed in the role and and one of the favorite games even from a recruiting point of view that you would actually ever go and watch was the local derby at at either east fremantle or or actually in fremantle and 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 found that those and and i'm one of those guys i don't know what you do but you go i can't not go into a footy club change or a footy club offices or football club area without really peering into the, you know, the old black and white photos of, um, you know, fit young men wearing, you know, footy club jumpers doing their best for that team at that particular time. and, And generally the ones that are on the walls of the celebration of premierships and and you get to know the – you get to see who the iconic people are.
0: Yeah, you get to see the history. And, and we do that in the – you do that in the military a lot. We got um, like messes and stuff where yeah. we display photos and you can go through and you can see the previous, um, you know, previous people that came before you. But I think, yeah. I think you're right. It's like any organisation. You just don't want to go in there and change things from the straight away. You want to kind of look at the tradition. No, you've got, you got to respect You've got
1: to respect where it's come yeah, from. definitely. Because definitely. Generally, uh, even as a leader, one of the things we have to always do is manage the term is manage your grandiosity and and what it's basically saying is that you know your first instinct when you come into a place uh, particularly if a place isn't going well is is that uh, you want to change things and uh, and if you've got no context from which you're changing from and to which basically you can't have if you're actually still if you're just walking in a place and and probably this was one of the lessons I learned relatively early in the piece was um, was to actually have a fair bit bit of respect for what's actually already happened Um, but you know through 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 the eyes of wherever you want to take it whatever your 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 thinking strategy vision is for the place Um, and coming into coming in over to Fremantle uh, the one thing I did recognize was the club itself wasn't um, didn't have the uh, its own tradition in the form that uh, say Richmond or Melbourne does, or particularly Melbourne, because Melbourne was the first, uh, yeah. club, or the first, first football club. Um, the, the football history of Fremantle is, is stands up against any in in Australia, and if not the world, really, because yeah, because because the the fact is that Australian football, in terms of its age and its traditions, is at least as old as all the other footballs. You know, yeah. and, and and can claim to be the oldest, in fact. So so they are playing. They were playing uh, football in Fremantle, fortunately, I think it was a guy by the name of AJ Diamond who 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 brought what they called Victorian rules. It was originally Melbourne rules, became Victorian rules, now Australian rules to Fremantle, you know, in the eighteen eighties, and um, and that's why footballs played in Western Australia. And it actually, from my understanding, a lot of it emerged from the city of Fremantle. Yeah, right. Why, why wouldn't you celebrate that as part of who you are? But you, you, you're not trying to steal, you know, the, the history and the heritage of um, of South or East Fremantle, and actually North Fremantle. I think was in the um, was in the West Australian Footy competition at one stage as well, and actually Fremantle itself was there was a Fremantle team, yeah. um, which then separated out. They're they're all part of the you know, the, the fabric of uh, football in Western Australia, and it is and it is it's equally as powerful as you know the, the teams which just grew out of suburban melbourne it's got to be at least that strong so why not celebrate that so we even in trying in trying to put together a, a a relatively young new true still trying to find its own way uh football club we we definitely drew on the um we wanted it to be sort of a, a proud uh incarnation of a wonderful Sporting story and a wonderful sporting heritage, and, and that's why, for instance, the medals called the is called the Doig Medal. Yeah, um, and we and, and George, up until he passed away a, a few years ago, would come to the uh, to the medal camp present the medal. And but I think George was one of seventeen Doigs who got to play for Western Australia. Got to play for. Um, East from or South from huh. Um So it's a, it's a remarkable sporting heritage. I didn't actually prime. know
0: that. I, I knew obviously about George Doig, yeah. but I didn't know about the fact that he was one of seventeen. So you know, there's yeah, so much heritage. was named just in that that
1: the medal moment. was named in celebration of the the family uh, yeah, right. of the. Uh, but George was, you know, they called him the Bradman of um, of football at the time because he was such a prodigious goal yes, kicker and, Incredible. Uh, yeah and a a wonderful wonderful fellow who i got to know and actually did the eulogy at his funeral in the end so it it was a it was a it was a it was a pretty special thing to be a part of yeah yeah it'd be amazing
0: so in the afl you had a career that spanned over over 25 years you were the youngest CEO in the history of the modern game to to yep. when you took over Richmond in 88 and you were 24 years old. So I yeah, know what crazy. I was doing when I was 24 years old <laughs> and it wasn't being yeah. a CEO of a football club. How does a 20-year-old, 24-year-old get yourself into a position where you can run a football club? Because that's incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: and it'd be crazy really. Look, it was... Um, it, And I think everyone always has to think about the special circumstances and, and even... Um, I remember Neil, uh, Neville Crowe, who was the president of the club and a wonderful mentor of mine. Um, who, when when, I was, when it was announced, and it wasn't like a big announcement like you'd have now, it was probably, there was a little press conference there, and I was just um, there might have been a couple of journalists. I, I don't think there was any television or anything like that. And yeah. uh, but I remember Neville's comment was that I was I was twenty four going on forty four, and I remember thinking to myself, I, I, I'm not. I, I, I can I can vividly remember thinking that that. This is a bit of a worry because he thinks i'm that uh, but i i knew in myself i wasn't um but there was there was probably elements of my uh upbringing and my experience in the sport which would be those you would normally associate with someone who was a fair bit older in that firstly i grew up in the game and and because i had a great passion for the sport for um, passions an overused word but I, I genuinely did it was a thing that i um, other than superheroes as a kid, it was the first thing I can remember thinking, I really love this. You know, I can't yeah. get enough of this. You know, that, that feeling that you love something so much, you just can't get enough of it. Um, you're never, you're never full. It's like, you know, the banquet and you can't get full. Well, I was like that with football. and yeah. and, and and as time went on, it became other things as well. But as a kid, it was mainly, mainly that. And my father, Alan Schwab, was secretary of the Richmond Football Club and Richmond in the 1970s were the power club of the competition. Mm. And so I'm growing up in an environment where my father's running or secretary, which then becomes general manager, CEO. It's the same terminology. I wish they still called it secretary in some ways because it's a unique role.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I'm spending my childhood in and around that environment and because my father knows how much I love it that that, that's almost the basis of our conversation in many ways and 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 he almost I think without um because he was a busy guy and he was you know uh and in those days the football was part-time for everyone but it was full-time for him so he was combining the part-time of everyone else with the full-time of what he had to do so he had very long hours that he was working uh, but I would often spend my school holidays in uh, you know, down at the Punt Road Oval. Uh, it was a regular thing for him to go in on Sunday mornings after games, and um, I would get in the car with him, and I, and he'd be sitting there talking to Tommy Hafey, the great Richmond coach, the, one about, of the greatest it, coaches ever. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, so they would never because they were there's no video, so yeah, they would actually sit down and they'd analyse the game from their memories, you know, yeah, and, right. and 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 uh, and so. And I'm sitting there listening to all of this, and and then when I'm 18, I I have no idea what I want to do. Probably my first inkling during school was actually to study fine art. That was probably my thing. Um, and but there was a job advertised in the paper for a a, a a it was called assistant to the football manager. So the football they were looking for someone basically to do all the runaround work for the football manager of the club, Governor Ray Manley. Yep, And I remember, it, and I applied for the job, my surname Schwab, there's a big chance I'm going to get it. Um, I'm obviously very into the game. I was a moderate student. I wasn't a very, uh, I was a, a premature sort of kid, I think. Um, but I got the job and it was halfway through my year 12. I finished my year 12 and I started work at Melbourne Football Club as the assistant to the football manager. But one year earlier... A uh, fellow by the name of Ron Barassi became the coach of Melbourne. So I go from Tommy Hafey to Ron Barassi oh, yeah. in my in, in my childhood, and then I spent five years working with Ron. Um, I end up uh, doing I end up editing his tapes for him because that's what the uh, the assistant to the football manager does. I was very good at doing mix tapes when I was a kid because my only chance of falling in love was if I could give my my the, the girl I might have had a little bit of an eye of on uh, a, uh, <laughs> a, a bit of a mixtape or something like that. So I started doing Ron Barassi's mixtapes, which ended up being cut in the videos for, for his his meetings. And, and so I'm getting these wonderful lessons on life. And then within a short period of time, uh, the rules of the game change just through circumstances, uh, drafting and all those sorts of things are on the horizon. I asked for the opportunity to do some recruiting. And and so I'm by the time I'm 19, I'm almost recruiting full time. Yeah, um, wow. and, and so that's just through situation and circumstance. And and I'm uh, probably a little bit of gumption in that I did ask the I did ask the question at the time. And um, and then a few years, probably three or four years later, Melbourne made the finals for the first time in 23 years, and I'd recruited a fair swag of the players. Um, yep. and the following year, Richmond asked me to be the To come and work for them i thought it was going to be in recruiting they said no no we want you to be the title was general manager in those days we'd like you to be general manager and um i was probably just thinking that might be a prospect that i would get to have at some stage in my career yeah Um, i didn't certainly expect it to be at 24. um and i remember ringing my dad on the way home uh, and asking what he thought and uh and my dad was a wonderful person at answering a question with a question at this day and he's now <laughs> gone on to my father's now executive commissioner of the afl so he's a pretty, very senior person in the game yes and uh, and i've got no doubt richmond were asking me to do the job because they thought they were going to get a 100 percent commitment from me but they're probably going to get a fair whack of alan schwab as well as Cameron <laughs> schwab as part of the deal uh, of which they did get and um and uh, he asked he said When when he asked me, when I asked him about it, he said, "Oh, what do you think?" I said, "Look, I think it's probably well beyond me at this time." And um, he said, "If it was the Essex Heights Football Club, which was a junior club I played for as a kid, would you would you think you could do that?" And I said, without hesitation, "I said, yeah, no, I, I think I could do that." He said, "Well, yeah, it's just the same. If you if you if you can get your head around." You know the complexity and the people and the the fact that it's never going to be easy for you. All those sorts of things. It's it, it's it's a hard job. I remember him saying it's a tough job if you're 24. It's a tough tough job if you're 54. And and I thought, well, why, why why wouldn't I give it a go? Why not have a crack? Uh, and uh, and I did, and I got to do it for six years. And um, it was a pretty tough six years. And probably even in hindsight, the, the the toughest part about it really was that it was my life job in lots of ways. And yep. and it was um, I got to do it very young. And 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 then I had to work out what I was going to do with the rest of it because I still had another. I'm still in that process, I suppose. I um, <laughs> still had another however many years of my working life to go.
0: It was, it's such a pinnacle position that people, you know, work their their careers for, and at a young age, it it must, it must have been hard to. To then go, okay, well, you know, do I stay as a CEO or do I do I? Um, I know for a period you went back to recruiting after Freeman. I think that was right. Was it, yeah, you went back yeah to I recruiting did it, it and, mainly
1: as a little bit of consulting, though. But I, I probably pretty much was a CEO from that point on. Yeah. Um there, there were little periods where I was doing other things. Oh, I got the sack twice. So 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 actually, even in having to rebuild my career, uh, was that, that was part of it. Yeah. Uh, now, and probably the one thing that the recruiting did did give, and it's probably a lesson for for most of us, is that I remember coming into the the role at Richmond, thinking that I had to invent a new version of myself. There was there was a sense that somehow this job was you know, so much different to the one that I had that I had to create some other version of me. And and I was young, and most of the people who were doing those roles say in other clubs or ceo roles in businesses that i got to meet um they had very much come and grown up in a command and control type of leadership mm. and and in many ways the coaches of that era were very were that as well and, and you know i love ron barassi and um one of the you know i just feel so um fortunate that i've got to spend the amount of time i have with him and but he was a very intimidating person. Oh, yeah. You know, in, in, and, and I sort of felt that that's how you did it. Um, but I, that's not who I am. And really the skills that I had developed for myself, which were an extension of me because there was no – no, there hadn't been a recruiting person at Melbourne before me. I was their first recruiting person. I had to make it up as I went, and, yeah. and your natural inclination when you make it up as you go is is it a, is it much more a natural extension of your capability, and, yep. and you're always learning. Um, and what to be a good recruiting guy, you ha- obviously you have to be good at talent ID. That's a big part of it, but you have to be quite strategic because you're trying to build a team. You have to be highly organised. Um, you have to be able to sell, as in you have to be able to position. And Melbourne wasn't a particularly attractive club to play for at the time if you haven't made the finals for over 20 years. Mm. Um, and you had, you, know, you had to, you know, build enough trust with people for them to align their careers with the organisation. And so they were very valuable skills to have as a CEO, but I, I didn't call on any of them as a CEO for the first period of time. I, I tried to invent some new version of me yeah. and I made, a me- I made a mess of it. And and it really wasn't until I had uh, enough, and I think it was mainly uh, it was really just a reflection on the fact that it, that I I, I I developed almost a dislike for myself in in regard to it all, and, and I think anyone who's in any in any high pressure situation i I think you you there's there's a difference between not having the confidence in your ability to do something as compared with actually having a dislike for who you've become as part of this and i probably spent that period i I was only 24 25 thinking i I don't like who i am here it's not and it's like some bullshit version of me
0: and do you feel that was because you're being almost In that position, the pressure you you were, like you said, you were forcing yourself to be someone that you weren't, and
1: i was just pretending. Yeah, it was some made-up version. It was like some, you know, even the way I dressed. I reckon, you know, it's just a, it was just. I I, and I was, I was young, and but and also looked young as well. Mm. Um, you know, and without sounding silly about it, I I was late into puberty. I was, you know, I was probably hardly shaving as well and and so it might have been all probably a natural response to that uh and the, the other thing was the power of a i clearly had a, a very strong uh influence in, in terms of my father who was very who was whose take on how he, he never thought to, or sought to turn me into some version of him that was never the case because we we're very different it was more this just this notion of how how you become the person you need to be but he wasn't with me on a day-by-day basis as i was making a mess of it um but neville Crow, the president of the club was and it was neville who really took me aside and 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 reassured me in some ways but also was very very strong in his messaging on the things that he needed me to get better at but he never actually made me feel young it was never on the basis that uh that I was 24. It was always this is what you need to do to be a better leader type stuff in his view, in his take. And, yeah. and he was he he was a he was very much into self learning and he was very much into self development. And I think naturally I had it, some inclination in regard to that. So so for him to to have someone like Neville in my life at that stage was um, even now as I think about it was and I haven't thought about this for a long time. So it's a good question. Was um, A really powerful a really powerful thing. Do you Um, think there would be a a wonderful person for me?
0: Yeah, definitely. To have a mentor like that guiding you is is an incredible asset. And I always say to people who who you know who um wanna want to get into leadership because I come from a a leadership background in the military and and who want to get into leadership and want to want to lead and I said, Well just find leaders that you love. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: find yourself a hero. And and it's and and also i think uh, if you're going to actually be a leader be you got to be prepared to be one as well so it's a find one be one you know that, yeah definitely you, know, you, you you learn by teaching and yep. as well as learn by learning so even when people do the work i do with um, <coughs> whether it's a masterclass or something like that I, I say look this is not about what you're going to don't don't think of this in the context of what you learn today it's what you can teach tomorrow and and if you can align whatever you've learned today with your existing wisdom your existing knowledge your you know the, the things that have got you to this point in your life and 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 it's the same if you read a good book or listen to a good podcast you know do you, do you take do you give yourself just that 10 or 15 20 minutes at the end of it and just say what what did I get from that what I'm, I'm going to collect my thinking at this stage and then if you sort of curate your thinking at a later stage and, and, and not you don't want to leave that very long mm. Where well, you then get to create some knowledge and understanding and learning which is unique to you, because it builds on your knowledge, it builds on your understanding, and it might have just added a dimension, a layer, some insight, <clears throat> which just makes it that much more powerful for you. but it's actually the power is for the people you get to teach who then get to do the same thing. and 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 of the people I've worked with and worked closely, that that was their strength. More than anything they, they embraced being teachers and and people have come from sport background or military background they get that straight away yeah definitely and um, because we're we, right from the outset you're taught leadership you know in one way or another if, yep. if you're if you're drafted at 18 your chances are you've already done a leadership program whereas people in life that doesn't happen yeah definitely and and the other thing that we're very good at the military and we're very good at in sport is we're, we're great at reflecting. Because we spend time, but we don't really start thinking about the next game until the Tuesday. Yes. Um, even though we're, you know, we're, we're, our, our mind is on the next game right from the, you know, the moment the final siren finishes the previous game, but we maximise the opportunity to get the most learning from the previous game before we actually actively move into the next game. Yeah. So, so the what happened, it, I always say to leaders, they ask yourself it's, it's three questions really. What happened, what now, what next. Whereas in business I find they don't do much of the what happened. Yeah. We're in sport the sport the military, we spend a lot of time on what happened. Yes. And yeah. the only reason we, we do that is so we don't fuck it up next time. You know, so that's <laughs> you don't make that's really the same mistake cool. twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we do our best to actually um learn from it and grow from it and, and because it's a performance-based situation, you know that performance happens in the moment. You just want to make sure that you're as well prepared or give yourself the best chance and And, and learning's hard. Learning's never easy, so you've got to give yourself the best chance of being good at it and so reflection becomes a key part of it and, and I was fortunate, right, even going back to the original question of the being 24, I, I'd had already, even though I was at 24, I'd already had six or seven years of that experience. Yeah, definitely. Which other people don't get, and so, so I'm sitting in that role not because I'm some freaky genius. I'm sitting in that role simply because of the, uh the, in the main because of the environment of which one I grew up in and the one I entered into in the first six years of my working
0: life. Yep. So every club that you kind of went to when you were in CEO, they were struggling financially at the time, and, and most were yeah. most were struggling on the field as well. Did you enjoy yeah, that? I did you enjoy that challenge of, of the roles or
1: um yeah i probably did but i i also say again that's a little bit of circumstances most clubs yeah. who are uh, most clubs looking for ceos Generally are looking the best for ceos because they're not going well <laughs> yes. yeah so that's so probably entering into the jobs become available because um you know of some situation and circumstance and and for ceos that's often the financial you know scenario i mean yep um and and there's obviously a compounding element if the team's not going well the club's not going well financially they you know they 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 impact on each other so so there's that circular nature to it um and so the the richmond one was really uh they were yeah the richmond footy club that i got to work in was a very different one to the one that i grew up in and the they'd gone from the power club of the competition so I started in 88. They won the Premiership in 1980 by a record amount, by a record margin. And so they were seen as, you know, they were going to be the club of the next decade. Yeah. And they played off in a grand final in 82 and then never made the finals until 95. Uh, so, and, and they broke and they got caught up. It was it, it was it was probably football's ugliest period, I think, you know, in, in regard to um, clubs almost sending themselves broke. It was lots of bidding for players and, and Richmond and Collingwood got caught up in this bidding war against each other with their respective players and and basically there was no the systems that were in and around clubs at that stage were really poor so so they there was a lot of players they'd sacked who were still in contract all those sorts of things and so yeah. it was a really messy scenario at the time and and um and we ended up uh, it was also at a time when which seems amazing now when you look at interest rates, but interest rates were about seventeen or eighteen percent at the time, and the club was actually carrying a big debt. And so, so you know, there was genuine concerns. You know, just that if it was anything other than a football club, it probably would have had its doors closed for it. And it was also at a time when clubs were talking about mergers, and and about a year after I started. Fitzroy and Footscray actually agreed to merge, and then mm-hmm. there was a big pushback by and Peter Gordon, who's president of the club now. Um, and there was a uh, it was probably the first community response to a circumstance. And, it was incredible. And, <laughs> was and, it thirty? And they say and, thirty years uh, last club. weekend. Yeah, was it? yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. they saved the Footy Club, and and so and, and we were going through almost the same scenario. But the one thing that we always knew at Richmond was that. If you actually—it's uh, the old "build it, they will come." Well, there was plenty of people who were going to get there, you know, because they were a big club. They just were in a terrible place. Yeah. And, and and about a year later, we we got to the point where we were struggling so badly, we were genuinely concerned about our ability to keep going. And I, I remember going round to Neville Crowe's house and saying, "Look, well, I think we've got to—we're going to we're gonna have to take a big step here. You know, we're going to have to almost kill the club and see if it can save itself." And and that led to a thing called the SOS campaign, which was Save Our Skin, and the club raised a lot of money in, raised well over a million dollars in, in in a couple of months, and and that saved the club basically. And, yeah. Right. And 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 during, and during, uh, and during uh, the, the, the centennial celebrations in two thousand and eight, it actually was nominated as the defining moment of the century for the club. So, so that was a wonderful thing to be a part of, but it was a very difficult time as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that was so. But I learned a lot from that. I I learned about the power of, or the not the power, but the importance that people who have have a have a deep sense of belonging and connection with their club, and never to underestimate that. Mm. And in in both the positive and the negative way too, because that can get a bit out of control, as we know, at different different times. That people are when you're when you're asking people to have a very high and strong emotional connection with their football club and then you're asking them to think of it in with all uh, in an insightful and um you know particularly when you're in a rebuilding phase where there's patience is a very very difficult thing for people to have when they're watching their team getting beaten and in many cases beaten badly yeah. you know, it's a it's a bit of a double-edged sword that one but on balance you, you just but people, people need to feel a deep sense of connection with their club. And that's what I learned from that Richmond experience. And I think I was able to take at least in effort. I didn't always succeed, definitely. But that was always the effort I tried to make. Like, for instance, I never I hated the fact when our people called our supporters punters. Oh, we've got to get the punters along. And I said, they're not punters. They're not having a bet. Yeah. These people have aligned their identity with this thing. This people would come up to you as a Melbourne person because the club was formed in 1858, and they'd say, I'm a fifth and sixth generation Melbourne supporter, and so are my grandkids. And I'm thinking, gee, they are going to be seven or eight generations of Melbourne supporters in this family. Yeah. So there, there, there wouldn't be that, – that cannot almost be said of, of anything other than our Indigenous communities in lots of ways. Yeah, you know? definitely, so yeah. So it's a it's a very powerful thing, and, and why and we can, can never take that for granted. And so that was probably the, the learning that I had throughout it all, and was that was always the effort, and and even going to Fremantle, that was the effort. Yeah, you, you might remember in the early days, we we were really active in trying to get the players to engage with the crowd. You know, We, yeah, we did things like the Purple Haze game. Yeah, purple, and we, still we, did we just did things. Yeah, you know, Chris Conley was a wonderful community person within as a coach. You know, yeah. all of those things became part of it. But again, and that's the that's the interesting thing about leadership, in in its own way, is that no one was ringing me up and saying, "Oh, well done on putting this purple haze thing together," because that, and again, that doesn't matter because because only you know. And most of the time, in leadership, is the stuff that is the most meaningful. Often, only you know, <laughs> yeah, because you you're the only one who's had the 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 the, the, so the layers of understanding and the depth of understanding of, of the amount of stuff which it took to get to that point or even the luck sometimes like i look at something like that as just being lucky in lots of ways um because there's been probably far more sophisticated pieces of work which never generated you know that type of response um this one's just something to, to to take off uh but the, the same would be anything it could be after a uh, you know, you land a major sponsor or you, you know, you employ a certain person or you see someone who's developed from one stage of their, um, their uh, you know, gone from one career to the next career and you know the role that you might have played with them at a certain time. I, I can sometimes see people now because I'm in my 50s who I knew as young players who just we might have had a little meeting at one point. When they were deciding and defining what they wanted to do beyond the game, and you just suggested something, and then you got to see what they did for the rest of their lives, and you go, "Do you wonder if that would have happened had it not been for that little meeting that we had?"
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, and and it's very personal. And and the one thing which you, everyone thinks about with leadership is that you're going to um, you know, you, you're you're going to have all of these wonderful moments because you have your hands on the levers of these big organisations, but the stuff which actually you really that you think about mainly is the stuff you almost can't explain to anyone. You yeah. can't tell anyone. You know, you can have a conversation like this um, and you can, your passion for whatever happened will be heard in your voice, but they really won't get it because the, only you can get it. And I think parenting is a little bit like that as well. You know, the, the best moments as parents are the ones that you'll just be... They'll just be in your quiet moments. They'll yeah. just be in the yeah, you know, the ones where you're just not you know. I'm
0: just, about to find just that out a
1: little moment moment of reflection, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh I'm about the to find that one ones.
0: out. So, my, my wife's pregnant now. So, we're oh, fantastic. having well, our cool. first baby oh, in October. Well so,
1: yeah, pretty excited about that. Uh,
0: I don't good, think I've actually yeah, said no, that well, on the a, podcast yet. So, there we go. <laughs> uh, well done. Good
1: stuff. Good stuff. Well, that's a journey. I tell, tell you what, the big one will be is when you actually put the baby in the back of the car for the first time and you're driving home from the hospital. That's when you know you're a parent. Yeah. You know? So, you're you, shitting yourself. And you're driving home. So you're driving home at about seven kilometers an hour. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And, you, and, and the full responsibility has gone from the it's gone from the uh, the the safety of the womb, the hospital, and now into the back of your shitty car. You know, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's that's that's one of the biggest. Uh, that's and I think leadership's a little bit like that. I often use the parenting metaphor with leadership. So it's a uh, good thing is you've done the leadership piece, so yeah. you probably uh, you've at least got that advantage. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> slight slight heads up. So yeah. these these clubs when they're struggling, they they yeah. you, you know. Obviously, talking about um, uh, a few of the clubs going through bad debt for Frio, I think it was yeah. more of a more of a hope that there was there was going to be you know positive comes in the future like um, premierships yeah. and those things which we're still yeah.
1: striving for, but still, still waiting. Yeah. yeah, how do you how do you go
0: about building culture in those clubs when they're when they're struggling? Because that to me is a fascinating um, concept, and is to is yeah. when when a te- when a club and or a group of individuals are really struggling. How do you how do you get how do you i guess um motivate them and build a culture around them to to be able to breed success
1: first of all i'd say that the one thing i think talk about culture is very overrated Mm -hmm. not as in the culture is not important okay so I'll, i'll get to that point but people people often go um you know i'm a culture person or something like that and you need to get the culture right and it's like the culture is something external to them yeah and so so I, I, I rarely talk about culture as a, I see culture as an outcome. Okay. So, so col- and things like, you know, some of the things that even organizations talk about with on their values, I say, well, I think they're outcomes that we're talking about there and and they might be, they might, and I'd say, I'm not saying they're not important outcomes, but I think what we've got to focus on here is what are the behaviors which will lead to those outcomes? And, and the the thing once you start talking about behaviours is you then end up in um, conversations which are far more challenging. And so what what we what what we live in, particularly in sport, is we live in a heroes and villains world. You know, we live in a world of winners and losers, um, and we have a scoreboard every week, which which um, talks of the winning or the misery, if you like, of the of the success and the failures. And and but for leaders, um, and one of my favourite quotes is from Ron Barassi, he said that the great the great players are better than human nature. They're better than human nature, in that there's some part of human nature which will draw us back into the easier, because that's what we're naturally built for in lots of ways, because we, you know, we we have big brains, we're very active at certain periods of time, and then we need to rest to give those big brains. But but modern life doesn't actually allow that we we and even when people come to you and so you, you ask people how they're going now and you say they say oh look I'm really busy or I go well, isn't that just what we're expecting that's just an expectation now there's no pride in being busy you know there's pride in being uh, productive or there's pride in making progress or there's pride in you know digging into a deeper piece of harder deeper work that mm. or a piece of creativity or something like that which is never easy yeah but the busy gets in the road of those things all the time so the point i'm trying to make is that if you when you've always got to create if you're looking at culture as an outcome that thing will be unique to a number of factors um, in some cases it's heritage you know that there is a folklore which has gone before you and that and there is already sort of cultural norms which have been established in. In that organisation, and most people say oh, we have got to change this, change that. But in most cases, I also think that you are looking at something which needs to be unique to that organisation. But it's mainly influenced by the behaviours of the most influential people in that organisation. So if 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 key people, whether it's leaders, um, uh, high-profile people within the organisation, prepared to model the the behaviours and expectations that the place thinks it needs, and it's only a judgment call to be successful. Well, you, you're never going to get. You're never going to get anywhere. Got to lead from the and front. You got to lead. You got to be able to model the behaviours. So, and then, so how do we change behaviours? So, wh- where do behaviours actually come from? I think they, they come from our habits both good and bad what what are the habitual things that we do is as individuals and as organizations because you know, organizations develop bad habits like people develop bad habits but organizations also in some cases have you know very good habits like a high um you know good good work ethos all that sort of stuff that's you know that is a good habit but also the identity that they actually have for themselves and the clubs that, that, that I found probably the most challenging aspect of going into the organizations Uh, where where they were, is that they'd often had not not just a lack of success as in recent, they'd had long-term lack of success. Mm. So they didn't identify them at a deeper level, that sense of identity, uh, do we see ourselves as a good organisation? Do we see ourselves as a high-performing organisation? Do we see ourselves as a caring organisation or whatever it might be? And a little example of that was the identity of Richmond which was a very successful club during the 60s and 70s, was one of being ruthless. Yep. And they are actually known as Ruthless Richmond. Ruthless wasn't a very good value to have beyond the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so But people strongly identified as Richmond people with this notion of ruthless. Yeah. And it was a disaster for them. It almost sent them broke. If you go and ask Trent Cotchin. Or Jack Rewalt, or even Dustin Martin now, what is the defining value of the Richmond Football Club now? They would, they would say humility. Yep. Can you get a bigger step from ruthless to humility? It's <laughs> a big. So they like, they're, like <laughs> if we, they're polar opposites. Yeah, definitely. And I know which one I, I know which one I prefer to have. Yeah, definitely. And and probably for me, even as a young C, I saw my role was to carry forward that ruthless thing, and that's what I talked about before about not being myself as a leader. Yeah. And and it's very it, ruthless. Is a very egocentric. It's 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 a very nasty. Yeah, you know, I, I understand there's a good side to it, as in, you know, never say die, all those sort of elements to it. But that's not the bit that we're talking about. You can be humble and never say die. You know, that's no, there's no worries there. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, and so that's that notion of identity. At Melbourne, for example, they hadn't won a pre- they hadn't won apprenticeship since 1964, and that's not a coincidence. And so, therefore, over a long, long period of time, there's been groups of people, all unbelievably talented, well-intended or whatever, have never been able to break through at that level. Mm. And and so, therefore, there is a sense of identity associated with that. So how do you actually now bring that at least to the point where it can be successful? And that's still a challenge that the club's actually got. Richmond, obviously, have broken through that. Yeah. And, I, and I think Fremantle are um, uh, closer in regard to... Of having made that step then perhaps it looks like at the moment they're just getting caught at the moment it's just re- they're rebuilding a the footy team and rebuilding a yeah. footy team's bloody hard work um so so all of that i i, I would say inside all of that there's probably a, a relatively um thoughtful high high understanding um group of people who pretty much know what is required but they just haven't got enough of what, it, what is needed at this stage to actually compete with the, you know, consistently with the better clubs. And they've had a bad run with injuries in recent times. Yeah. And that can, and that can affect it. So the two things I think you've got to focus on are the identity, the, the intrinsic identity that people actually have and the organisation and then the habits you actually put. And they both work in support of each other. Yeah, right. And I'd say the same thing as a, as a leader that you know people often talk about the imposter syndrome as a leader.
2: Mm.
1: Well, the one the reason you feel like an imposter is you don't identify as a leader. Yep. And you haven't built the habits to support it. And I suffered from the imposter theory, you know, the imposter syndrome, just about every day of my life. I, I I felt that I was on the Truman Show or on Candid Camera or some bloody thing <laughs> where someone was going to burst into my office and say, Cameron, this has all been bullshit. This is a joke. You're not really the CEO of Richmond. You know. Yeah. You're not really the CEO of Fremantle. that that always is there for you. So how do you actually keep building, you know, your own sense of identity as a leader consistently is one of the great challenges for anyone in a leadership role. And I'd say you can then take, so that's your own personal culture if you like, and then you've just got to extend that out to your organisation. So culture is a product of behaviours. How do you influence behaviours? I think it's a combination of identity and habits, and that's where we really focus. And And that'd be the two things I'd focus on straight away.
0: Yeah, it's unreal. And it's good you say that because as soon as you started talking about that, I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I believe in. So <laughs> it works, yeah, yeah, it works yeah. well.
1: <laughs> but so, I'd say the same thing is that it, 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 whether it's your health, whether yeah. it's your, so okay, I went back and studied um, art full time. Yep. So I'm a full time art artist. Do you reckon I could actually tell people I was an artist? I'd say to be oh yeah, I'm an art, yeah, bullshit artist. You know, so yeah. so th- so I'm studying art full time. I'm waking up in the morning thinking about art. I've got good artistic habits the one thing which I've probably been able to learn over a period of time which gave me advantage as a mature age person coming into the schooling was that I'd built up decent work habits but when I could not say I was an artist I, could, I would say to people I do art yeah yep. but not that I'm an artist yeah. it's like I'm a writer or do I write I'm a leader or do I lead I'm a fit person I'm a healthy person or you know yeah why you know even even this notion of how do you stay healthy well, the first thing you got to do is start thinking yourself as a healthy, as someone who is a healthy person. Yeah, and 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 you build healthy habits around that. And I've struggled with that many times. But you, but even in so, and I've if I go into a room and I've got a whole lot of CEOs, I go, "Put up your hands if you see yourself as a leader." And in there, mate, they they struggle to put their hands up. It's a crazy thing. Yeah, wow. And and so this is because they just keep questioning so we've got to get we've got to work on both your identity as a leader and but you've got to have really good quality leadership habits you know and we then talk to what those might be and develop those for that individual and i think that's one of the critical elements of coaching
0: yeah definitely so in those in the times when you you know you talked about before that you that you'll let go by two of the clubs um You know, this, just being in the role that you're in, you've been in front of the media so much. Like the yeah. pressure on you at times must have been immense. Like, um, how do you actually, how did you cope with that? How did you, how did you manage to keep your head up under the pressure?
1: Yeah. It was probably the only time I got, I got sacked twice by Melbourne. So that, those were the two, um, those are the two darkest periods and the most challenging periods. Yeah. Um, the, and and for different reasons, probably the second time, not so much. Um, the The actual pressure itself is, I, I, and it's going to sound really weird. I, I didn't struggle so much with that. Um, the The uh, just the expectations of the role. I, I didn't. I didn't battle so much with that. I struggled very much with. Um, the expectations I had of myself, probably. Um yeah. And so one of the sort of the, the potentially toxic thing for anyone in a leadership role, particularly one where there's any form of public scrutiny, is is expectations and comparisons. And the one thing that sport doesn't lack is expectations and comparisons. Yeah, definitely. So how, so how how do you find um your own, your own way, because because I, I I knew and understood that what was actually happening outside of the organisation, whilst it has definitely the potential to influence the organisation, was largely a reflection on what they were seeing at that time.
2: Mm.
1: Whereas, as a leader, you get to see something very different. So you get to see development. It's like, you know, everyone's going to be talking about you know what Brisbane have done this year to to turn it around and they'll, they'll be talking about it as a, as a success story and, and, and certainly on track to be that. And, yeah. And, and, and something which, you know, even 18 months ago, no one was, no, no one was questioning what they were doing, but no one really knew. And, and I, I would be surprised really if they, if they knew, because you, 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 basically just keep on doing the right things and, and hope that, it, hope that it works out. Yeah. But there is, the thing about habits and, and building of behaviours as it relates to um, high performance is the compounding value of them. But you don't necessarily know when there's enough compounding has happened here, you know, because it's um, it's you know it's like putting you know a dollar away, a dollar a day away in a bank is a um, a cool thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you do wake up one morning. You've got a bit of money in the bank. You know, it's that, it's, it, and I can now do some of the things that I was hoping to be able to do. And I think habits are very much those. It's not the first run you go on, it's the, if you're still running in six months' time. Yeah, time definitely. And, and I think leadership's a lot, a lot the same. That You just got to keep doing those. And so you get to see and sense, perhaps more than anyone else, what the, um, whether you're making progress or not. And in doing so, uh you get to therefore wear through and have a sense of confidence uh about where you're at at any time and you need to be able to have that that's that's critical um what i found uh, difficult uh often was just asking is am, am i the right person here am, am i if something went wrong or something that okay, am i am i am I making a mess of this thing yeah yeah you, know, you, you literally would ask yourself that you know I think you know I'm doing and we're still no good or whatever. and they were the times where where I, I I struggled you know i would I would um you, know, you, you just start thinking yourself as a fraud basically yeah yeah and, and uh and it wouldn't matter what anyone said it, it wasn't the it wasn't what people were saying about you which from time to time that was hurtful. But it was mainly what you were saying about yourself. that's what you were internalizing about yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the bloody voices in your own head. I um, always
0: always call it a false narrative. Um it's, it's generally ninety yeah. percent of the time it's a 99 I probably I'd probably even go to let limit, say 97, 99% of the time. It's a false narrative that your brain kinda tells you and it says that, you know, like, um, yeah, I am a fraud, I'm not good at this, um, you know, I'm gonna fail yeah, this. I'm um, gonna when if you yeah, you know, if you were if you were able to, hindsight's always a always a beautiful thing. But if you were able to at the time, you could, and you, and you stood back, you would actually see that you know you're not yeah. a fraud. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and, and that bring and that draws on something you So I, I I reflect now on the times where the times where where, where people would question what I did mm. and quite publicly would bear little resemblance to the ones that I knew that were the real issue. Yeah. You know, so, so if someone said, Oh, you mucked up this or you did that, I go, Yeah, I probably did. But i got just say, so you know, that wasn't, well, that's a walk in park to the ones you don't know I did. Yeah. You know, we're almost like a sense of shame associated with that. And shame's a really powerful thing for leaders. Shame's a really powerful thing for men in general. Yeah, it is. No, no doubt. No doubt. And so you have, oh, and I think probably we learn it later. I reckon women get shamed early. Like it's, a, it's actually, you know, you know, because I've had these. My wife's a clinical psychologist, and we have these conversations about this, and yeah. and, and, and um about this. The, you know, the, the you know women's shame versus men's shame. Men, men you know, uh, they're, they're obviously a little bit different in their own way, and I, and that's why you know Brené Brown's stuff's really quite powerful in in regard to this. Yeah, um, but to actually uh, the times I know where i made my worst decisions generally are uh, when i lacked courage and and i reckon i banged myself up on that more than anything where where i sensed there was a need for the person with my title so i was the ceo Man. to have stepped into a conversation and i didn't yeah
0: okay i do not know about you but i loved that episode i loved having that talk that i did with cameron he's just such a good bloke to really he's such a down-to-earth and honest bloke for someone who has you know been to the highs of highs he said as he said in the podcast um he's been sacked twice from jobs and so he he's been to the lower lows as well when it comes to his working history but Yeah, he's just such an incredible person to sit there and listen to. I was just so intrigued. I was writing notes the entire time that we were we were chatting and and you'll see that it gets even more in-depth into structure, into company, into into culture, into mental health within the workplace, all those stuff in part two. So please, please be sure to tune into part two next week. Okay. If you want to be Legend of the Week, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, all you need to do is jump online to iTunes, Facebook, uh, whatever it is you would like to do, uh, preferably one of those two, and uh, give us a rating, give us a review. It takes it takes so, it's, it's such a small thing to do. It takes two minutes of your life, maybe, if you're lucky. And you can even just, write, it's great, and that's it. Uh, I don't. I don't care. Just, just jump online. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Because you have no idea how much this actually helps us grow. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, we don't take money for this. I don't get sponsorships or anything like that. We're not big enough or anything to do that kind of stuff. But the only way we're going to be able to get bigger, the only way we want the only way we're going to be able to grow. And to, I guess, get this podcast out in front of more people, get them listening to it, get them tuning in, get them, you know, evaluating their lives on how they can make themselves better, how they can help themselves, how they can develop themselves, whatever it is that you can use this podcast for, it needs to, it needs to start with you guys. We have got to share this content, share it as far as wide as you can. If you know someone who, you know, you feel might enjoy these types of podcasts, then jump online, send them a message, send them a DM put something in the inbox, tell them to go listen, tell them don't be a douche, jump on board. It's a great podcast and let's get it spread. All right. Thank you so much for all your support as always. We're going to be bringing back hopefully a few things on Instagram and Facebook this week. it has been out of touch for a little bit, so I've got to get back on that train. Uh, But yes, for now, enjoy your week and we'll catch you in the next episode. For anyone that's still listening. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> <laughs> See, I could even laugh at my own jokes. Laughs, what I do. <laughs> right. awkward, it kinda goes on for a bit too long here. Oh oh Got a bit of music. Alright, let's stop wasting your time.